We know that diversity of thought leads to better results. We know that people being included leads to happier people, which then also drives through to business results. So it becomes a much clearer connection into business strategy. The other element that's really important is it becomes much easier for individuals to understand. So if we've got one core message, then it's much easier for our really busy people to say, okay, I get that, that makes sense. Then when we see other messages that might be group specific, they ladder in and they build on that, that first narrative. Welcome to our Thinking Differently About DEI series. We know how important diversity, equity and inclusion is in organisations and that when done right, it can make a huge impact. But we also know that it can be incredibly challenging. And this series is about how we can take new ways of thinking to challenge how we're doing things at the moment and ultimately make real change in organisations. I'm Kerry Boys, and I'm here today with Phil Cross. So the work we do with organisations that are trying to create more diverse, equitable and inclusive cultures brings us face to face on a daily basis with some of the biggest challenges, challenges facing businesses that are trying to make meaningful change. And some of these challenges are pretty universal. We see them across different industries, different types of organisations. And this has kind of got us thinking when we're dealing with these persistent and almost universal problems, we need to start to question how we're traditionally going about solving them. So in this series, we're going to explore those challenges, share some of the ways we've been working with our clients to think differently about making progress on DEI. So that begs the question, why do we need to think differently? And Kerry alluded to it at the start there, but really it's because we're not seeing the type of progress that we'd really like to. So this is progress in things like representation. So looking at the stats here in Australia, we know that women make up half of the population, but only still 10% of senior roles in the ASX top 300 organizations. And we see this across the board from different uh, different groups, be it uh, disability, LGBTQI+, et cetera, et cetera. We're also seeing lack of progress in things like measurement of engagement, inclusion, and belonging scores in organization. And this is also leading to a lot of, de a lot of burnout of DEI professionals. So many individuals are leaving their roles in organizations because of the emotional labor. It can be a draining and challenging topic because of insufficient resources sometimes, uh, resistance, constantly having to deal with that pushback, role strain, um, having to juggle multiple priorities. So it's really hard and it doesn't feel like we're making progress. And that seems like a really good reason to start trying to unpack things and do things a bit differently. And when we were thinking about this, we were like, okay, we get it. Like change has to happen. Things aren't quite working in their current form. But but why aren't we making change? Why aren't we doing things differently? And really for us, this comes down to the fact that trying new things in DEI feels risky. And that's because it's such a highly emotive and it's sensitive as a subject. Lots of the topics we're discussing are really sensitive because they sort of go to the core of your identity. And that makes people really risk adverse. So we're scared of getting it wrong. Those stakes feel really high. And the risks are very real. So there's risks of offending. There's risks on people's personal brand. There's potential negative publicity for organisations. And there's even legal implications. And all of that risk means that we default to traditional ways of thinking. And that's even if we're not getting the results we hope for. So it's safer just to do the same thing we've done before rather than try new things. So then we know we need to try new things. But how do we do that given high risks that exist? So 
The way we've been thinking about this challenge is actually let's take some learnings from some really proven tried and tested fields, as well as some advanced thinking in some more experimental fields and apply those to DEI. So the way that we've been working is to take areas such as agile, design thinking, positive psychology, organizational development, change, adult development theory, and apply these to how we think about DEI. Phil, I think you've got an ad. Yeah, it's uh, this is this is one of the it leans on one of the core tenants we talk to all the time, which is uh, the power of diversity of thought and the power of bringing in different and fresh ideas to, um, you know, to to solve problems differently and ultimately get get better results. And this is what all of the the stats we see around diversity uh, and, and and inclusion and high performing organisations are founded on. So so it's kind of walking the talk here when we're talking about you know these these areas like design thinking and positive psychology that Kerry alluded to why wouldn't we bring these in but but all too often in traditional approaches they're not touched on so um we just saw this as a huge huge gap and a huge huge opportunity and also something we find quite fun so getting mm. to play with some of these areas and both Phil and I in our past have got a lot of experience in them so it's been really this whole process has actually selfishly been pretty enjoyable for us and I think what you'll see as we share our thinking today and then in the upcoming series is how we've taken a range of these areas and we've blended them um, along with some of our own thinking to really try and help solve some of the key challenges that we just hear time and time again from our clients. And that was our starting point. So, yes, there's all these different ways of thinking, but we have to hook this into something real. And that real starting point for us is the challenges that we know organizations are facing. And that's how we can make this as useful as possible. So the five challenges that we're going to be addressing over the series is, first off, how do I make sense of DEI complexity? We know it's an incredibly complex subject and people can get very overwhelmed and it can be really hard to manage resources there. The second area is, how do we truly embed DEI into the organization? So it can quite often be a bolt on rather than built in. So how do we truly make it part of everyone's day to day? The third challenge is how we get on leadership and employees agendas. So we know how many competing priorities they are. We know everyone's got their day to day. How do we make sure that people understand why this matters? And of course, what they can therefore do. The fourth area, uh, measuring DEI effectively. How do you build measurement frameworks that actually work? Um, that's about not looking at too much data, not looking at data overwhelm, but focusing on what we can, what we can really action. And then the final challenge we have here is delivering effective L&D at scale. So especially when we've got large organizations, how do we roll out content workshops in a way that enables individuals to actually be able to understand, take perspectives and make change? So over our next five episodes, we're going to be working through those challenges and each episode will focus on one on one challenge. So today's episode is going to focus on the first of those. How do we make sense of DEI complexity? And, and just before we jump into that, I think it's important to say that these are obviously challenges we've noticed with the organizations we work with, but we've also validated these in a number of different ways. So we've had conversations with our clients. We've taken these to uh, industry forums where DEI experts, HR and L&D experts have kind of chipped in and helped us kind of refine our thinking around these five core challenge areas. So um, there's, there's a degree of consensus out there that these are these are really the big boulders that we want to be focusing on. Gary. And that 
is also across a real range of organisations. So those organisations mm. are from ASX listed through to much smaller, even not-for-profits. So these challenges have been pretty universal across the, the broadest range of organisations. So hopefully there'll be something really useful for you in this today. Mm. So the first challenge we're going to talk about today is how to make sense of DEI complexity. Now, DEI can be challenging from this perspective for a number of reasons. There are multiple different groups we want to consider when creating a diverse and inclusive organizations. There is the overlap between those groups and the intersectionality. So people are not just one aspect of their um, identity. They are, they are multiple and many. And this can create a bunch of downstream effects. The cognitive load for individuals in the organization when so many uh, so many different messages are being put out there and so many different um, uh, you know, lessons, learning things. And uh, the stretch that can put on our resources uh, from an organizational perspective, how do we, uh, how do we prioritize and, and how do we cater for um, a diverse set of needs? So this, this is obviously quite a big challenge. And the way we've been um, making sense of this complexity is uh, a few different ways. But first of all, is to think about um, think about the challenge from an inclusion first or an inclusion foundations first perspective. So, what do we mean by that? First of all, it's important to say that we're not talking about an inclusion-only perspective. So there are very specific needs that groups have that we want to absolutely uh, prioritize and absolutely address, but. What we find is that when we focus on those foundations first, we have a more stable base on which to uh, build and a more stable base from which to solve uh, for the uh, for the needs of uh, specific groups. Foundations doesn't mean it's basic. It doesn't mean it's easy. Um, to make an analogy, the foundations are not the most basic part of a house, <laughs> but they are absolutely necessary uh, uh, to build the rest of the uh, the, the structure on. So. Foundations talks to the common elements of inclusion that can be relevant across multiple different groups. And we'll talk to these in a few different contexts as we as we go through the rest of this session. So they're things like taking an inclusive mindset, um, being aware of, uh, for instance, types of bias that can apply across multiple different groups. Um, they might mean basic inclusion practices that enable more voices from, again, a range of different underrepresented groups to be heard more readily in the organization. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about at a top level. Uh, and now we're going to dive into a few different areas to, to unpack that and, and kind of really make it real in the context of the work we've been doing. Yeah, and I think that's important because I know this can sound a bit theoretical, but hopefully where it really comes to life is when we start to, to talk about how we apply that. So we're going to talk to three areas. Um, strategy and how we build DEI strategies from an inclusion first perspective, learning and development, and then ERGs or employee resource groups, which is a really interesting one when we're talking about specific groups, but also inclusion first. So I'm going to start with strategy. And what we often see in organisations is their diversity, equity and inclusion strategies are led by the different groups that exist. So there might be a whole load of work going on around gender and around race and around sexual orientation, for example. And they almost have pillars built around different identity groups. And while all of those are absolutely important, what becomes really hard for people in the organisation is to understand all of those different messages. And it becomes really hard to resource all of those different things. And also we see huge levels of crossover. So what we're looking at here is thinking, actually, if rather than going 
individual group first, we think about what are those consistent elements that make sense for all groups. So we aim to have one DEI strategy that's relevant across all groups, and then that is built on with elements that work for specific groups. So what we would have there is a clear vision, a DEI vision, what we're aiming for, where we want to be from a diversity, equity and inclusion perspective as an organisation, and a clear narrative and a clear set of actions that work for the vast majority of those groups and people that don't necessarily fit within specific groups that we tend to prioritise. And what's important about that overarching approach is that really gives us an opportunity to link through to organisational strategy. So if at a top line level, what we're trying to do is have a organisation that mirrors the communities that we operate in with a, from a representation perspective and where everyone feels really included, for example, we can talk about how those two things are then going to be able to drive business growth because we know that diversity of thought leads to better results. We know that people being included leads to happier people, which then also drives through to business results. So it becomes a much clearer connection into business strategy. The other element that's really important is it becomes much easier for individuals, Phil talked about cognitive load earlier, individuals to understand. So if we've got one core message, then it's much easier for our really busy people to say, okay, I get that, that makes sense. Then when we see other messages that might be group specific, they ladder in and they build on that, that first narrative. At Leaders for Good, we have a proven track record of helping clients from a wide range of different industries create lasting culture change. We achieve this by developing impactful diversity, equity and inclusion strategies, by delivering highly effective workshops and programs, and by leading change initiatives that truly work at scale. So if you're enjoying this conversation and would like to talk to us about accelerating your organization's DEI efforts, please reach out at hello at leadersforgood.org. And, and it's not just it, the understanding, obviously, is super, super important, but it's how people then can talk about it with each other in the organization and how it really becomes part of the language and, and part of the kind of the daily ritual and how, for instance, leaders can cascade uh, the message down um, throughout their team. We know that a lot of the um, this is kind of moving on to an area we'll talk about in, in a in a um, in a future session. But so much of um, DEI being embedded comes from the leaders of individual teams um, really making it part of their um, part of their language, part of their ways of working and part of their day to day. And if the message is confusing from the top, it's going to be hard for those leaders to translate it to the day to day. So it's really, really important that the, the, the vision, that the story is clear. Yeah, and I think that's so important. And what we found with this approach, where we've got one core message and series of initiatives, is that we get a much stronger buy-in from leadership because it's easier for them to understand. We know how busy our leaders are. And if we're asking too much of them, then it's going to be really hard for them to flow that down through the organisation. Whereas if we've got one clear core message, then that's a, a much, yeah, it's an easier, easier win. Mm -hmm. So I talked about the fact that what we often see in organisations is almost their sort of pillars or their key tenets of their strategy tend to be diversity group focused. Whereas we're talking about strategic pillars at a inclusions first level. So I th feel I thought maybe you might want to talk about some examples of that. Mm, exactly. The strategic pillars, again, just, just to kind of get clear on what we mean by a strategic pillar, it's a it's a way of helping guide our thinking and guide our um, uh, ideation and prioritization of all of the subsequent initiatives that we want to roll out, um, uh, you know, as part of the uh, as part of the overall strategy. So 
if those initiatives don't ladder up to a um, to a strategic pillar, something that we think is really, really important, it gives us pause for thought in terms of is that the right thing to be doing. So um, measurement is a really, really common one. How are we measuring success um, in terms of DEI across all of these uh, all of these different pillars? And we'll talk to measurement very specifically in a in a in a future in a future one of these sessions. It might be how do we communicate and celebrate? So um, again, if the messaging, if the language, if the story has been uh, confusing and inconsistent in the past, how do we get very, very clear about that in the future? Uh, and the, uh, another example could be um, education and empowerment. How do we, uh, how do we um, craft a learning and development program that um, is really meaningful for everyone in the organization? So again, you'll notice none of those speak specifically to a, uh, an individual group, um, but they are uh, beneficial to all groups. And I think what's really important about strategic pillars is these are ideally based on data. So we've ideally seen within an organisation that we've got some real key challenges that exist. So say our strategic pillar is around inclusive leadership. And that might come from the data and insights that actually people don't believe that their voices are being heard within the organisation or they don't understand um, how decisions are being made. And we identify that a key way that we're going to be able to drive those challenges is by improving our leadership's capability to understand what inclusion looks like, hearing voices, making inclusive decisions, for example. So we want to make sure we understand the, the problems. These allow us to solve for those challenges. And then we'd also build measures against them. So that in that example, let's follow through with inclusive leadership. It might look like leadership ratings, which we know some organisations are uncomfortable with, but we think it's really important in terms of driving accountability. It might look like scores around voice and decision making. It might look like 360s in terms of how leaderships are performing. Um, it might look like leadership self-rating scores. So we start to see how it's much easier to measure things that can drive back to business and business strategy when we're looking at strategic pillars versus individual group specific work and one final thing or well, uh, we could we could talk endlessly about strategy and Kerry and I um, commonly <laughs> commonly do but I, I think one final thought on that that we'd uh, maybe like to leave you with today is that by focusing on inclusion more broadly by focusing on strategic pillars which are not um, directly related to individual groups it it not only solves for things like resourcing and cognitive load but it actually um, uh, it actually de-risks other people feeling excluded and um, by that i mean if you're a you know, if you identify as part of a group that does not um, does not fall into the strategic pillars of an organisation that is focused on maybe a, maybe on reconciliation and LGBTQI plus, but you're a person with a disability, that can often feel like okay, well, where's the where's the focus on my needs? Where's the focus on 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 my group's needs? Um, by focusing on inclusion first, we're we're in, hopefully including everybody, and again providing that platform for individual needs to be met uh, post that. So, um, an important consideration there, I think. The next area we want to look at is learning and development. So, the this foundational approach can be uh, can be translated to how we think about our uh, our workshops, our webinars, and and how we um, upskill and uh, improve the, the capability and capacity of our people within an organisation. So, for context, we've had thousands of people go through um, our learning and development uh, offerings. So, we've we've run workshops for people at all levels of organisations across many many different types of organizations so this is kind of the, what we're going to share with you now is based on on the learnings from from all of those sessions and the results we've seen from them as well so by taking a foundational approach and by that 
and we mean focusing on core skills that people can connect back to their day to day and really make uh, make real as part of their, uh, their 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 working life. So things like how does bias show up? How does it show up across multiple contexts? How do you identify it in yourself? How do you potentially identify it in in others? Concepts like privilege. Um, how do we recognize the privilege we have and, and what do we do with that? Um, and then core skill sets. So how do we give and receive feedback effectively? How do we have conversations around topics which people can find difficult in the workplace? Again, beneficial across multiple groups. How do we make decisions which are less biased, more impartial, more fair? How do we deploy things like coaching skills? So we're asking questions, we're helping people um, share their ideas so we get that greater diversity of thought and we're also hearing more more varied, more diverse and, 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 and uh, more rich perspectives as well. So these are behaviours, again, that are universally applicable that people can make use of in their day-to-day and because these are more generalizable, people get to practice them. People get to reflect on their success and their impact. Often what happens, especially in organizations which are less diverse, people might go to a education session, they might go to a training session, they might learn about something, but then they don't have an experience of it in the workplace because the diversity isn't there. So uh, it kind of goes goes to waste almost. And, and we know that, uh, you know, the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve for those learning and development nerds out there, um, training that's not put into practice often just gets forgotten very, very quickly. So this gives people an opportunity to um, to action what they learn. Um, again, this creates a foundation. It creates a shared learning, a shared understanding, so that when we do talk about the needs of specific groups, they're more easily understood um, and they're more easily uh, kind of accepted and, and integrated by the organisation. So, again, we've seen uh, we've seen a real, real. Um, We've seen real strong feedback and we've seen uh, really strong results off the back of this um, this inclusion-first approach to learning and development. Kerry, anything to add on top of that? Yeah, I might just give an example of sort of the alternative. So I had a conversation mm. with a client towards the back end of last year about allyship training, which is something that we offer. And they said to us, we've been really struggling to find the type of allyship training that we want. And I was like, okay, tell me more about that. And what they'd found was that they could get allyship training for First Nations or they could get allyship training for LGBTQI+, or they could get allyship training for women. But as they identified, there's so much crossover in all of those different areas. And what they were looking for is exactly our approach here, which is that foundational allyship training. What are the core principles of allyship that apply across all groups. And yes, as part of that training, we do use those groups, examples from each of those different diversity groups. But what it allows us to do is give a set of principles, like a a foundations or principles-based approach with clear actions, but then people can apply that across multiple groups rather than feeling almost stuck because they understand it within one context. So I thought that might just Mm. be helpful in terms of a specific example of how this L&D might play out. Yeah, and if we're linking that back to the realities of organizational life and, for instance, resource constraints, time constraints, um, you know, running multiple uh, multiple learning and development sessions is, you know, people's calendars. There's only so much time, <laughs> uh, learning and development budgets. There's only so much budget. If we were to run an allyship course for each individual specific group, uh, I say most of organizations would would not would not take that approach because of that resource constraint. So it allows us to to still have that uh, and and have that in a way that works for the the most possible people. Okay. 
So the final area we want to talk about as an example is ERGs. And this is also employee resource groups. So when we have groups of people within organisations, normally identity-based, so it might be a women's ERG, that are designed to support that group in some way. So whether that's taking action, whether it's a community for that group. Um, so this is a really interesting one to think about in terms of inclusion foundations, right? Because we're saying here foundational approach, but then we're also saying group specific. And the reality is that these two things absolutely work together. So what we believe is that the foundational approach actually helps make ERG is much more effective. So if we think about it from the strategic side, if we've got that foundational approach, we have that strategy that works across all groups, and that becomes the basis for ERGs to do their work on specific groups. So they understand what the organisational aim is, they understand what the organisational is trying to achieve in this area, and then they can plug into that. So when we've worked with rolling out programmes for ERGs, they've said that's one of the most useful things, is having a true understanding of where the organisation is trying to go so that they then know where they're trying to go. And rather than having all our ERGs working completely in isolation, they can point in the same direction. The other ways that we think about this from an ERG perspective is actually bringing them together. So things like collective problem solving. So we were working with a group recently and we were talking about International Women's Day. And traditionally, you'd just go and you'd speak to your women's ERG about International Women's Day. But actually, because we were collectively problem solving, we brought all of those ERGs together and said, what should we do for International Women's Day? We were able to take the learnings that lots of the other groups had had when they were focused on key events. But also, we were able to build a really intersectional approach because we got to think about International Women's Day in terms of women with disabilities, for example. So bringing them together as a problem solving brings that inclusion foundations approach to life. And then the other area that we found really useful is in terms of how they take action. So again, if we're thinking just in individual group perspective and they're doing policy reviews, for example, we've had organisations that we've worked with come to us and say, actually, these ERGs are making our lives so much harder. As a HR person, I've suddenly got six different sets of perspectives on endless policies, and I don't know how to manage that. Okay, if we work collectively and collaboratively, then we say as a whole ERG group, broader ERG group, we're going to focus on this policy first, we're all going to give our feedback, we're going to have a discussion, and then we send that to HR. So we've got a much more collaborative approach that's considering all groups. And then the other area that's really useful, and we've seen great success, is around communication. So back to that challenge we mentioned at the start, if we've got six ERGs, communicating six different things about six different groups, it becomes very messy. We know communication is already a challenge in organisations. Actually working with those ERGs, we were like, what are the key things we want to communicate? So one was recruitment. Awesome. Let's communicate recruitment for our ERGs across all groups. Or if it's events, let's communicate across all groups. So we actually, in that organisation, ended up with one ERG newsletter, one ERG Slack channel that had the broader communication on, and then people could be funneled into specific activity for specific ERGs. So again, this is back to sense making and also managing resources. We'll, um, we'll link to this in the short show notes, but we've also got an episode and a, and a blog post on effective ERGs. We, we uh, do a lot of work in this area and um, a, lot of the, a lot of the points Kerry, Kerry has just articulated, but um, some of the how we bring that to life is detailed in a, in a bit more depth in those, uh, in those posts and episodes. So we'll make sure we link to that as well. 
So this is our approach, I guess, and we've brought that to life through a few areas. And overall, we're hearing amazing feedback from clients in terms of the Inclusion Foundation approach because it really simplifies things and it provides that framework to work within and the, the sense-making for both HR professionals, DEI leads, leaders, and then the organisation more broadly. And what we thought we might just touch on now is some of the key questions that we get in relation to that and specifically in terms of, well, how do we make it happen um, for our for our organisation? So the first question that I'll pass over to you, Phil, if that's okay, but is I've already got that strategy in place. So my strategy at the moment, it focuses on different groups. I've got a diversity group first approach. So I've got that pillared approach. So I've got, yeah, we've got a focus on gender. We've got a focus on disability. We've got a focus on LGBTQI+. How do I move to an Inclusion Foundations approach when that's already in place? Mm. Uh, and this is obviously, you know, asterisks over the uh, the the answer. This is going to depend on the on the organisation and what's been communicated and what's been rolled out, etc. But I think at a high level, I would um, I would answer this with think about the roadmap and think about what comes first. So once again, we're not saying that there isn't absolutely um, necessary work for individual groups to be done in organisations. You know, people with disabilities have very specific needs that would potentially sit outside of an inclusion first approach. Absolutely. Um, but maybe uh, if we're thinking about re um, reevaluating our strategy, it's what comes first and what's the story there. So we're absolutely going to um, still have a focus on the needs of individual groups, but what we've identified through um, through our conversations, through through the surveys we've done, is that there is potential overwhelm, lack of understanding, um, lack of resources, all of the things we've talked about already. So our first cab off the rank is to uh, is to is to take some of these inclusion foundational or these foundational inclusion steps and that looks like x y and z once those are in place we've got shared language we've got shared understanding then we're in a much better place to start focusing um, more specifically on the on the needs of individual groups and, and potentially communicating that more broadly. So that's one way I would think about approaching this. It doesn't mean throwing out the strategy you've already got. It means rejigging it and maybe reprioritizing some of your initiatives and activities. I don't know. Anything to build on there, Kerry? Yeah, I guess my point or my sort of starting point is always where possible to start with the data. So what do we know about how well our strategy is performing? Do we see these challenges? Do we have that overwhelm? Do we have confusion? Um, what, are, what are our people telling us about the work that we're doing already? And then that always helps provide a starting point. And depending on what that data tells you, depending on what you have in place already, what tends to happen with organisations is that we and I guess this depends on organizational maturity so where you are in your DEI journey but quite often with organizations we will go in and we will do a new strategy process so we will go back and we will speak to those groups we may speak to other individuals internally and understand what's working what the challenges are and then work with the core team to develop that strategy as Phil said it doesn't mean throwing everything out that exists but it does mean working out some of those missing pieces so often organizations wouldn't have that overarching vision of what we're trying to achieve in DEI and they're quite often missing those strategic pillars and the measurements associated with those and then once we've got that, then it's easier to start to reprioritise the existing initiatives and understand the gaps. Sometimes we don't need to go back and speak to the organisation. Sometimes the DEI leads in whatever form that might be. It might be under the CEO remit or it might be in the HR remit, wherever that sits. We might be able to just run like workshops and say, OK, this is what we've got now. 
this is where we're trying to get to. These are the principles that we want to apply. What are those gaps and how do we start to, to fill, those, fill those in? The, the next commonly asked question we get is, what does this mean for underrepresented groups um, in the organisation? Um, Kerry, I'll, I'll, I'll throw that question to you in the first instance. But um, yeah, how would, we, how would we go about talking to that? Yeah, and I think the number one sort of misconception that we risk with talking about inclusion first, and you've probably heard us talk about this a fair bit so far, is that this is not saying that specific diversity groups are unimportant. Like, I think we can't stress that hard enough. What this is saying is it's about trying to build a platform so that the work that we do for specific diversity groups is as effective and works as hard as possible. So in terms of what this means for underrepresented groups, it's about building a platform to, to do more work. And again, that might take time um, in terms of where focus is. So what might happen is early on in the process, we might be focused on inclusion foundations. And then once we get that set up and established over time, it might be that we move to specific diversity group focus. Um, as, we're, as we're building that understanding, we've got the shared understanding internally, we've got the basics around what does bias mean? That applies across every single group, not just specific groups. And then we start to build. I guess a really good example of this is hiring. So again, we've seen lots of organizations, they go and they review their hiring process, but they're just looking at, okay, well, how do I improve the experience for women in my hiring process? Actually, what we should be looking at is how do I improve the hiring process for everyone? And if we can get that right, we can work out how the hiring process prioritizes, prioritizes diversity, prioritizes inclusion at a total level. That will apply, that will make a big difference for lots of groups. But once we've got that in place, then we can say, okay, what additional things do we need to do for people with disabilities for women for example um but getting the, the sort of the chunk of it right first means that that's going to be much easier much more effective and much more efficient use of resources later on and just a couple of bolt-ons to that i'd say um when we're thinking about our underrepresented groups this approach should be done with not for the members of those underrepresented groups. So we're involving um, we're involving the ERG leads. We're involving um, a representation from um, from different groups throughout this process in terms of consultation, in in terms of execution, and uh, circling back to what I uh, what, what we what we talked about previously with the employee resource groups, making sure those are as uh, those are as shored up and as set up for success as absolutely possible. So um, those ERGs still remain in, in place. And if they're not quite hitting the mark in terms of how effective they are, um, we'll defer you to the <laughs> to the other episode about um, effective ERGs, but making sure those uh, those groups are, ser are served as, uh, as well as possible by the organization. So um, underrepresented groups should ab absolutely be part of this process. They should absolutely have, um, uh, you know, forums, et cetera. Um, and all of that kind of acts in, acts in concert, I think, to a more effective approach and a more effective strategy overall. And it's been interesting because I think when we've talked to DEI leads around this, I think that is a concern. It's like, uh, uh, what are my ERGs or what are people of the underrepresented groups going to feel about this? But we haven't ever had any pushback from underrepresented groups because when we've articulated in this way, absolutely understood that this is about a better outcome overall. And it's also about making sure that we get 
everyone on board. We know this work can't fall to underrepresented groups only, which often happens. So mm. what this whole of organization approach, the bigger strategic approach does is say, actually, this is for everyone. This benefits everyone, but this is also everyone's responsibility. And we know that we have to have people in power positions. We have to have white men on board. And so often they're excluded from DEI work or they feel excluded from DEI work. So what this allows us to do is have people that are in power positions, people that do have the potential to help drive change rather than just assuming that RERGs and underrepresented groups will, will do the work for the majority. So I think just to, and Kerry, feel free to jump in if there's any other any other points, but maybe just to summarise uh, some of the things we've talked about. So taking an inclusion foundations approach um, helps reduce confusion, helps reduce overwhelm, helps create clarity. However, it doesn't mean inclusion only. What it does mean is a strong foundation with uh, longer term, greater success, greater buy-in for uh, nearly everybody, well, well, for everybody in the organization. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's some food for thought for you. If you're a DEI professional, if you're, um, if you're kind of helming DEI initiatives in your organization, uh, feel free to take any and all of the ideas that we've shared in these uh, in this episode and in the in the series to come and um yeah swipe them with pride and put them into play see how they see how they uh, how they work and if, if you have success or you have questions we'd love to hear from you yeah and we've really enjoyed thinking about this and really open to be challenged if you've got any thoughts any questions we're we're happy to geek out on this so get in touch and we're very happy to have a chat thank you thanks Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Inclusion at Work podcast. If you'd like to help others benefit from the conversation you just heard, the most impactful thing you can do is share it with a friend. You can also give us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, if you'd like to talk to us about accelerating your organization's DEI efforts, or if you'd like to provide feedback on anything you heard today, you can reach us at hello at leadersforgood.org.